And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not been yet appeared. But we know that when we, he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen. You may have. Good morning. Oh, that was a great uh, welcome this morning. We are here in uh, 1 John chapter 2. We will head into chapter 3. Uh, many of uh, the scholars believe that this is, would have been the breaking point. They, they believe they got it wrong. It actually should be chapter 3 um, is where they start. For whatever reason, the scholars, when they decided to put verses and chapters together, they, they broke it up the way they did. Um, so you can really think of it, we're starting chapter 3 this morning, not uh, concluding chapter 2. If you've been with us, we're in this small little letter that John is writing to the believers, and the whole context is to love God and to love their people and how those mesh together. And what I've been trying to do is walk us through these scenes. And this scene is uh, this morning, we're going to be in the gym. So think of, th amen, right? We're going to think of basketball. And so here, here's the context of where we're at this, this morning in this passage that we're in the locker room and John's giving us this speech before we go play ball. And so think of it in those terms, that here John is, he's giving that last speech before you rush the court to play ball. And so he's going to say to us, hey, this is, we're going to have victory here. Now, you've got to understand what he's talking about. Because our understanding of when we head into a, a, a basketball game, we're not really sure we're going to win. I think of this uh, past weekend. Purdue ought to have killed that team. I mean, that dude was seven foot four. If I'm seven foot four and you put a six foot two guy on me, I'm dominating. But they lost the game. Now they, with all assurance before that game, they were number one seed versus number sixteen. Only one other time in the history of basketball has a sixteen seed beat a one seed. So how much confidence do you think Purdue had going uh, for them going onto the court? But yet, they didn't have full assurance they could, they could win. So that's what John is going to talk to us about this morning, this full assurance. The word that we're going to use is hope. And so how do we know that John is going to talk to us about hope this morning? You have to take verse 28 and smash it with verse 3. So I'm going to show us that this morning. He says this, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, catch that, underline those two words in your Bible, when he appears, that he appears is crucial in the text. We will have 
confidence not to shrink back from him and the shame in his coming. So that's the first piece. So hold those two words when he appears. And then he says this, and everyone who thus has hope in him. So what is the hope that John is talking about this morning? The hope is his return. Now here's what the world says hope is. This is the world's definition of hope. It's a feeling of expectation and a desire that certain things might happen. So it's an expectation that something has happened. Purdue had an expectation going out on the court that they were going to win. Vegas had an expectation that they were going to win. But that is not godly hope. That is not biblical hope. So what is biblical hope this morning? Here's the definition of biblical hope. It means to have a confident expectation that it will happen. Not that it could happen. Not that it might happen. Not even that it should happen. But we have this confidence in the Lord's return and we can know without a shadow of doubt it is going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen, but He will appear again. God will return. He promised us that. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, I'm going to go to a place, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to return and bring you back to the place that I prepared. Now, he's still in that moment of preparation. Because I promise, when that last moment of his preparing the place for us, when he's done preparing it, he's coming for us. Like he, that, that last, like whether it's going to be a, a rose and a vase or a last like carpet, like he says he's preparing a house for us. So I promise this, when he's done preparing wherever you're going to live in heaven, he's coming for you. We can be assured of that. That is what John is talking about to us this morning. So do we have our hope anchored in that? This is what the writer of Hebrews says about this hope. It says we have this sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. I want you to think in a moment what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, our souls are anchored in this hope. Think about a ship with an anchor. If you put an anchor down into the sea, that ship is going nowhere, no matter how rough the seas are. And so the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, we can put our hope in this anchor. What's the anchor? He says, a hope that returns in its inner place beyond the curtain. How come we can have this hope for our souls? Verse 20 in chapter 6 of Hebrews says this, where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf. So our hope is in the forerunner, not in ourselves. And I don't mean a forerunner like I drive. I, I mean the God of the universe has gone before us and has blazed the trail and he will return for us. And therefore we can have the confidence when we step out onto the court, not that we might win, but we will win. That is what John is saying to us this morning. Now he's going to show us five things about hope. though. Five things about hope. First is, where does it come from? Like, How can we be assured of this hope? 
And, and then he says, what do we do with the hope that we've been given? And then he's going to say, this is the outcome of the hope that you've begin, been given. So those five things are this. Where's hope come from? What are you going to do with the hope that you've been given? And then what does that hope do or produce in you? So I'm going to teach this text out of order. Because it's not an order of the text. So you have to look at the text. You have to pull out the text and then place it how it's to be formed. So the first place is this. We have to ask ourselves, where is this hope? Where is this assurance that we have, this confidence that we have? Because if it's in any other place but this one place, you can rest assured that you have no anchor. If you have a hope in and of yourself, or in and of your spouse, or in and of your children, or in and of this church, I promise your hope is going to fade quickly. So where is this hope, and where does it come from? Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Hope comes from one word. It comes from one person, but through one word. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know Him. So John says, hey, where's your hope come from? One word. The love of God. It comes from God and it comes through His love. Like God loved us so much that He would give us a hope so that we'd have an anchor for our soul. This is what He says about this love. This word love in this text is uh, the idea of agape love. This is the kind of love that has no limits. Like God pours out his love and there's never, it's never going to go to empty. Like it's just going to keep on going and keep on going and keep on going and keep on going. It, it's never going to run dry. That's the kind of love God has for us. Not only does it never run dry, but this kind of love, this agape love, is also sacrificial love. Now think about the sacrifice that God gave to us. His son Jesus. We're going to celebrate that here in a few weeks. It's called Easter, that he would give his only son to die for you and me. That's the love that God has. This overflowing, abundant, sacrificial love. This is what he says. We'll see this in a few weeks here in 1 John chapter 4. And in this love of God was made manifest among us. So this love of God was made manifest. The word manifestation means this, that what was uh, unseen was now put into the flesh. So this love of God was put into the flesh. Well, who's the flesh that it was put into? John says that God sent his only son. So he manifests his, his love through his son Jesus into the world. How come God loved us? How come He made His love manifested Himself in the in the Son that we might what? Live through Him. So He put all this love into Jesus to come to this planet so that we would live in Him and through Him. And in this love, catch this as this is the important part of this text for us this morning. In this love, not that we love God. Catch that. We did not love God first. 
he says, not, this is the love. Not that we love God, but what? That he loved us. Thank God, God's love does not hinge on if I love him or not. Man, because if it hinged on if I love God or not, I'm in trouble because Paul will say in Romans, hey, while I was a sinner, God loved me. Sinners don't love God. That is what makes us sinners. He says, while you were an enemy of God, he loved you. So you're a sinner and an enemy, and he still loved you and loved me. So it doesn't start with me. It starts with who? Him. But he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. The word propitiation just means this, a sacrifice for our sin. Now catch, this is when it happened. He did not send his son when I walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer. It happened well before that. This is the love that John is talking about. A love that can only come from God. Remember what John would say in John 3.16. For God what? So love the world. He gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do we, do I, do you, do, does this church, does our hope, is it anchored in God's love? Because if it's anchored in anything other than God's love, I promise this, it's going to get swept away. If your hope is in your spouse, if your hope is in your job, if your hope is, in, like I can keep naming, but if you're the anchor of your life is not secure in the love of God, you are in trouble. So the first thing you have to ask yourself this morning is this, do you believe in the love of God? Because the rest of this text will not make any sense to you. John comes out the gate. It's a salvation message first. Do you know the love of God this morning? Have you received the love of God? If you have not received the love of God through salvation by the death of Jesus Christ on a cross, you will never have hope. Catch that. You will never, ever have hope. And then, therefore, the rest of the text, it won't matter what you do. Because you'll have nothing to what we'll see in a moment. You'll have nothing to abide in, and you'll have no place to practice your righteousness. And then you'll never become like him. So it all hinges on this place. If John is with us and we're in the locker room, he's first saying, do you believe in about, about what you go to, to do? Like, do you believe in this game called basketball? But he's saying, do you believe in God who sent his son for you while you were yet a sinner apart from him? If you cannot say yes to that, you might as well stop and you get up, go to my office, and just start praying. Don't listen to the rest of this message because it will jack your brain and heart up. Because then you'll get to this place, I got to do something. Like, you'll read the rest of this passage as if you've got to do something. So if you're here this morning, my office is open, the lights are off, go and get with Jesus and ask, God, please reveal your son to me in a saving way. 
Do you believe in the love of God this morning? That's where it's got to start. But John doesn't stop there. He now says, now what are you going to do with the love that you have? What are you going to do with it? And he goes back and starts in verse 28 and 29. He says, this is now what you have to do with that hope that you have in Christ and that the assurance you have in the resurrection and his return. You have to do something in these moments of his return. Like this is not a salvation and now you get to go plop down on the couch and eat Cheeto puffs. Like that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not a waiting game. We're not here to wait for his return. We are to do something what God has given to us as he is preparing for us to return. So what are we doing with the hope to which he's called you? Don't sit in this pew. Please do something with the hope of the love of God. And John says two things you must do. The first thing is what? He says, and now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence not to shrink from him in shame at his coming. The first thing that we must do with this abiding, is, uh, with this hope, is we must abide in him. Now, one of the youth asked, Brother Joshua, what does that word abide mean? So I'll clear it up. The word abide simply means this. It means to stay or to remain. It means wherever he goes, you go with him. Again, if you have a dog, I love dogs. Cats don't do this. Cats do not abide. Cats are way wickedly independent creatures. Am I right? Like, they don't abide. Dogs, they abide. Like, I have a dog, she's two years old. Wherever I go, where's that dog go? Right beside me. She doesn't leave my side. That is what John is saying we must do. We must abide in him. Where he goes, do you go? Where he goes, do you go? Think of it this way. Hold his hand and let him lead you all the way. Abide in him. Well, how do we abide in him? We abide in him through his word. This is his primary, not his only way. His primary way for us to abide is to do it in this. So are you, am I, as we as a church, are we abiding in God's holy word on a daily basis. Is this what drives your soul is to abide in him? Now John's going to say to us, how come we ought to abide in him? What is the purpose of abiding in him? Because there is a purpose to abiding in him. It's not, it's not just, hey man, I'm told to do it. He says, here's the reason we are to abide in him. So when he appears, we have what? Confidence. Like we have confidence. I've been abiding in Christ. Therefore, when he comes, it doesn't throw me off. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not scared of it. I have this confidence. The word confidence in the text means this. It means to be outspoken about something. Like I have the assurance. Like, yep, I got it. 
So when he comes and he returns, it's not like, man, I hope I got it. John is saying, because you abide in Christ, you now have the confidence to be outspoken about it is who you're abiding in. And then he says this, because when he comes, I want you to abide in him so that you what? You don't shrink back. And you're not caught in shame when he returns. What does John mean by that? Think of this. This is the illustration. And all of us have been caught doing this. Anyone ever been caught doing something you ought not to be doing? And the shame of it? And the scramble of it? Uh, it's like, oh, no, 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 man. That is what John is saying. Hey, when you have confidence because you're abiding in Christ, you won't need to shrink back. You won't need to hide. You can stand up with all assurance and say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm a man who repents of my sin. And so there's nothing in your life and in my life that would be consistent. If he were to return today, that you'd be like, uh-oh. And so now the next question is to you and me, do you have that confidence this morning? If Christ showed up this morning in this place, is there anything in your life that you'd be like, oh, man, gosh, wish I had gotten that right before I came to church. Like, you can hide it from us, but you can't hide it from him. Like, is there anything in your life today that if he showed up on the spot while you were doing it, you'd be like, oh, man, that ain't good. That is what John is saying to us. But he's saying to us, hey, if you abide in him, you'll have the confidence when he shows up that you won't be ashamed of that and you won't need to shrink back. Yes, we're sinners, but we're repentant sinners because we abide in him. And when we abide in him, God, through his holy word, will continue to reveal to us what we must repent of. Now, that doesn't mean, oh, because I've got God and I have repentance, I can just keep on sinning and keep on repenting. That's called cheap grace. And grace wasn't cheap. It cost Christ his life. It ought to cost you something. So if you're sinning and you're playing the card, I've got the repentance card and the sin card, quit playing the card. Live in daily repentance as you abide in him. If you abide in him, sin will be eradicated from your life. So are you abiding in him? I'm not saying you're going to be sinless. But you will live a confessional life as you sin. And you will want to run from sin. If you abide in him. Because now he says, if you abide in him, then this is the next thing that will happen in your life. Your abiding will lead to what? Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, who? Christ and God is righteous. So now the next part of our life is righteousness. So if we abide, then something else happens. If we abide and we abide in him who is righteous, we will become righteous. He says that you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. If you want to know that you have hope in the resurrection, look at your life. Do you live a righteous life? A righteous life means this, you are living rightly. Now, if you abide in God, what do you think the outcome of that's going to be? A righteous life. So look at your life. Do you and do I live a righteous life? Are we doing what God has called us to do? If we're not, turn around and look up 
and think, well, then I must not be abiding. Because if I'm abiding, then the outcome will be righteousness. So are we living a righteous life? That can only come through salvation. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to go to the third one. So he says, you got to abide. You have to live a righteous life. And when you abide and live a righteous life, you have that hope. What does this hope lead to? Look at the very last verse in verse 3. And anyone who thus hopes in him has this hope as his, as his, as his return and lives a life that's abiding in him and has a righteous life, it says what? In him purifies himself as he is pure. So my abiding leads to righteousness. Righteousness leads to what? Purity. Without spot or blemish. Like that is what God has called us. Remember what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Be holy, for I am holy. Now remember where your holiness starts. He's not saying, hey, go live a holy life because he is holy. It starts, you can only live a holy life because he loves you. You abide in him. That produces righteousness as it all comes from who? Your holiness doesn't depend on you. It depends on Christ's love for you. You are not going to do anything in and of yourself to make yourself pure. It will be the outcome of God's love through his son to you. So that is what we must do if we are to say this morning that we have a hope in Christ. So the first thing to you and to me is this. Am I abiding in him? Is it leading me to a righteous life? And is my righteous living producing a purity in me? Because God can continue to eradicate those sinful places and sinful desires in my heart. And we would call this sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing process of becoming pure and becoming holy. Now that will end, and you'll see this in a moment, when Christ returns. But the rest of our days, I must abide in him. I must go after righteousness and I must go after purity. And I must be in step with the Holy Spirit that he is doing these things in my life. Is that true for you? Is that true for me? Is that true for this church? And John says now, hey, when all those things happen, when you understand the love of God, when you are abiding in him and there's a righteous life and there's a pure life, he says this in chapter 3, verse 2. What happens? He says, Beloved, you are God's children. So he wants you to be reminded, okay, you have salvation. You belong to God. And God belongs to you. But he doesn't stop there. He says, Beloved, you are God's children. Now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Catch that. He's saying there's something else that's going to happen to you. It hasn't appeared yet. It hasn't happened yet. But there's more to this hope. As you have this certainty, something else is going to happen. Like there's more to the story. What's more to the story? He says more to the story. 
there's something that's going to happen to you. It hasn't happened yet. But we know that when He appears, remember, when He returns, this whole passage is about the hope of Christ's return. And He's saying, there's something else that's going to happen to you when Christ returns. You have this hope. You have this expectation. You have this knowledge. You have this certainty. When He returns, something else is going to happen to you. Now, what is going to happen to you when Christ returns? This is the beauty of the passage. It ought to be the beauty of our heart. It must be like, man, that is what my hope is secure in. What does John say our hope is in? Not that it appeared. It's going to happen. You shall what? Be like him. I get like one little amen. Let me read the passage out loud one more time. Beloved, you are God's children. Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Something else is coming. But we know that when He appears, when He returns. But we know that we will be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. And what is He? He is the manifestation of God's love that's abided in His Father, that's lived a righteous and holy life, that is a pure being. The way that Christ is pure, holy, blameless. He says, you will be just like Christ. That ought to blow our brains and hearts. There will be a day when you see Christ face to face, either at His return are you returning to Him if you are a believer that you will be just like Christ? What does it mean to be just like Christ in this passage? It means this. There will be a day that you will be sinless. Amen? Like there will be a day that the presence of sin in your life is gone, that the power of sin in your life is gone, and the penalty of sin in your life is gone. There will be a day that you stand before a holy God the way Christ Jesus stands before a holy God. And the rest of your days will be lived like that. Amen? And that is what John is telling us as we go out onto the court. Hey, let me tell you what's about to happen. You're going to win, and this is how you're going to win. I promise you do these things, it's going to happen. Not because of what you're doing, but because of what's already been done for you because there's one that's already taken the court and won. So now we get to go live that way with full assurance and confidence, not in ourselves, but in God's love through Jesus Christ. And now next week, you're really, if you thought I stepped on your toes this week, next week you're going to be like, hey, now stop practicing sin then. That's what he said. I didn't say that. That's not what I said. He says in verse 4, look at verse 4. He said, hey, here's the confidence that we have. We abide in him. We live righteous lives. We become pure. And one day we'll be like him. So then he says, everyone who keeps practicing sin is also practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, Please come back next week. <laughs> and now we have to ask ourselves, it can't start with me stop practicing sin. Because I'll be in a rat race the rest of my life. 
Do I have the confidence and the hope that God has done for me what I cannot do for myself? And that's to allow me to abide in Him. That's to allow me to live a righteous life. That's to allow me to live a pure life. And when those things happen, I won't want to sin. But then I have to say, then what's going on in me that I keep sinning? John is going to address that before we take the course. Let me pray for us this morning.